to a special edition of What's Your Point in this year, Black History Month, Black Music Month, and also it's Valentine's Day. Hello, my name is Garnet Anchor. On the show today, the focus is on two great men, two great black men in American history. Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. My thought for today, it was Marcus Garvey who said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin and culture is like a tree without roots. The focus now is on Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass's original name is Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. Douglass was born in 1818, though the month and day are uncertain. He later opted to celebrate his birthday on February 14, which is today, Valentine's Day. So he would have been 203 years old today. Separated as an infant from his slave mother, he never knew his white father. Frederick lived with his grandmother on a Maryland plantation until he was about eight years old when his owner sent him to Baltimore to live as a house servant with the family of Hugh Hald, whose wife defied state law by teaching the boy to read. Aud, however, declared that learning would make him unfit for slavery. He was forced to continue his education surreptitiously with the aid of schoolboys in the street. Upon the death of his master, he was returned to the plantation as a field hand at 16. Later, he was hired out in Baltimore as a ship caulker. Frederick tried to escape with three others in 1833, but the plot was discovered before they could get away. Five years later, however, he fled to New York City and then to New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he worked as a laborer for three years eluding slave hunters by changing his name to Douglas. In fact, Frederick Douglas was born a slave.
at Nantucket, Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Convention in 1841, Douglas was invited to describe his feelings and experiences under slavery. These extemporaneous remarks were so poignant and eloquent that he was unexpectedly catapulted into a new career as agent for Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. From then on, despite heckling and mockery, insult and violent personal attack, Douglas never flagged in his devotion to the abolitionist cause. To counter skeptics who doubted such an articulate spokesman could ever have been a slave, Douglas felt impelled to write his autobiography in 1845, revised and completed in 1882 as Life and Times of Frederick Douglas. Douglas's account became a classic in American literature as well as a prime source about slavery from the born man's viewpoint. To avoid recapture by his former owner, whose name and location he had given in the narrative, Douglas left on a two-year speaking tour of Great Britain and Ireland. Aboard, Douglas helped to win many friends for the abolition movement and to cement the bonds of humanitarian reform between the continents. From Africa, with the intention to steal our culture. The good for the post by and say, Humble yourself, my little one. Humble yourself, my children. Humble yourself. Oh, my brother. Douglas returned to the United States with funds to purchase his freedom and also to start his own anti-slavery newspaper, the North Star, later renamed Frederick Douglass's paper, which he published from 1847 to 1860 in Rochester, New York. The abolition leader William Lloyd Garrison disagreed with the need for a separate black-oriented press, and the two men broke over this issue as well as over Douglas's support of political action to supplement moral suasion. Thus, after 1851, Douglas allied himself with the faction of the movement led by James G. Burney. He did not countenance violence, however, and specifically counseled against the raid on Harper's Ferry, Virginia, October 1859. During the American Civil War, which was between 1861 and 1865, Douglas became a consultant to President Abraham Lincoln, advocating 
that former slaves be armed for the North and that the war be made a direct confrontation against slavery. Throughout Reconstruction, between 1865 and 1877, he fought for full civil rights for freed men and vigorously supported the women's rights movement. After Reconstruction, Douglas served as Assistant Secretary of the Santa Domingo Commission, 1871, and in the District of Columbia, he was Marshal, 1877 to 1881, and Recorder of Deeds, 1881 to 1886. Finally, he was appointed United States Minister and Consul General to Haiti between 1889 and 1891. You are listening to a special edition of What's Your Point? In this year, Black History Month, Black Music Month, and indeed today is Valentine's Day. The focus currently is on Frederick Douglass. I am Garnet Ankle. Douglass's life from slavery to statesman, his writings, his speeches, and his national and international work have inspired many lines of discussion and debate within fields of American and Black American history, political science and theory, sociology and in philosophy. His legacy is claimed despite his links to ideas of cultural and racial assimilationism by Black nationalists as well as by black liberals and black conservatives. Douglas can be linked to the history of American philosophy through his participation in national discussions about the nature of and future of the American Republic and its institutions. In that light, he is linked to his contemporaries who had academic philosophic connections, in particular Ralph Waldo Emerson, and by the uptake of his political and social legacy and writings by later black American philosophers such as W.E.B. Du Bois and Alan Locke. In contemporary philosophy in the United States, Douglas's work is usually taken up within American philosophy, black American philosophy, and moral, social, and political philosophy. In particular, the debates in those areas focus on his views concerning slavery and, in his later career, at the dawn of Jim Crow segregation, racial exploitation and segregation, natural law, the United States Constitution, violence and self-respect in the resistance against slavery, racial integration versus immigration or separation, cultural assimilation, racial amalgamation, and women's suffrage. You are listening to a special Black History Month edition of What's Your Point here on WPKN Radio. The focus now is on Frederick Douglass, free slave 
American abolitionist and American statesman. In his three narratives and his numerous articles, speeches and letters, Douglas vigorously argued against slavery. He sought to demonstrate that it was cruel, unnatural, ungodly, immoral and unjust. He laid out his argument first in his speeches while he was with Garrison's American Anti-Slavery Society and then in his first autobiography, The Narrative. As the United States Civil War drew closer, he expanded his argument in many speeches, editorials, and in his second autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom. worked to pour out a scorching irony to expose the evil of slavery. His rebellion against slavery began as he recounted while he was a slave. In his narratives, this depiction of early recognition and general recognition among blacks and some whites of the injustice unnaturalness and cruelty of slavery is a major element of his argument. It marked his first argument against slavery. Some of the apologists for slavery claimed that blacks were beasts, subhuman, or at least a degenerated form of the human species. These arguments go back to at least Sepulveda's arguments in the 15th century, which Bartholomew de las Casas famously countered these racist and ignorant thoughts were common in the American British colonies and then the United States. For example, Thomas Jefferson famously intimated this point in his notes on the state of Virginia. Douglas argued that blacks were fully rational humans and mocked slavery's apologists for its hypocrisies and contradictions when it claimed otherwise. In his 4th of July address, he decried the very idea that he would ever need to argue that point. Old pirates, yes, they rob I 
Sold right to the merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the end of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly Against the claim that blacks were beasts, Frederick Douglass argued that rather slavery had brutalized them. He pointed to the obviousness of the humanity of blacks and to the hypocrisy of the apologists for slavery in America on this question. Why should there be special laws prohibiting the free actions of blacks, such as rebelling against the master or any other white person? If slaves were bestial and incapable of independent, responsible behavior, why indeed had slave masters encouraged their slaves Christianization and then forbade their religious gatherings? Along with this hypocrisy, American slaveholders feared and banned the education of blacks, while accusation that blacks were beasts was predicated on the guilty knowledge that they were humans. Additionally, it subverted not only the natural goodness of blacks by brutalizing them, but it also did so to white slaveholders and those otherwise innocent whites affected by this wicked institution called slavery. Slavery, Douglas pointed out, making reference to Jefferson's anxieties in query 18 of the notes on the state of Virginia, written in 1785, that slavery was a poison in the body of the Republic. You are in touch with WPKN on a Sunday morning. The show is What's Your Point? aired fortnightly at this time between the hours of 9 and 10 a.m. Eastern Time. As you know, we are celebrating Black History Month. On the show today, we are showcasing two great black Americans, Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. The focus is currently on Frederick Douglass. Later during the show, we'll feature Booker T. Washington. So you do stay tuned. I am Garnet Ankle. Since blacks were humans, Frederick Douglass argued they were entitled to the natural rights that natural law mandated and that the United States recognized in its Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Slavery subverted the natural rights of blacks by subjugating and brutalizing them taking men and turning them against God's will and nature into beasts. 
It is an affront to natural law. Slavery contradicted God's law. Douglas cited biblical passages and interpretations popular with abolitionists. As a witness and participant of the Second Great Awakening, he took seriously the politicized rhetoric of Christian liberation from sin and, as with other abolitionists, saw it intrinsically wrapped up with liberation from slavery and indeed natural liberation and he argued that slavery was inconsistent with the idea of America, with its national narrative and highest ideals, and not just with its founding documents. Drawing on the ideas of manifest destiny, as well as the idea of natural law realized in historical progress, he argued that slavery was inconsistent with development moral, political, economic, social, and ultimately historical. America was on the wrong side of history on the question of slavery. To defend slavery, some of its apologists drew on the idea of historical progress to offer the defense that slavery was a benevolent and paternal system for the mutual benefit of whites and blacks. Douglas countered by drawing on his experiences and the experiences of other slaves that American slavery was in no way benevolent. It brutalized blacks, subjecting them to debilitating murderous violence, to rape, to the splitting up of families another crime against nature, to denying them education and self-improvement, and to the exploitation of their labor and denying them access to their natural right to property. Black slaves were not happy sambos benefiting from the largest of kind gentle white masters. They were brutalized against all justice and reason, neither were they lacking in agency or self-respect, nor were they, for all intent and purposes, socially and morally dead, subjected to natal alienation. They were moral beings, fully aware of their rights and capabilities, they were unjustly deprived of, and most of all, they wanted freedom, independence, the recognition of their full personhood and their rights as United States citizens. An early, very important contributor to the philosophical literature on Douglas and to the American philosophical literature on Douglas was Angela Davis who, of course, is a key figure in the United States Civil Rights Movement and the emergence of both the Black Power Movement and Black Feminism since the 1960s. Her groundbreaking essay on Douglas called Unfinished Literature on Liberation II argued for an active 
rather than static conception on liberty, drew on and criticized Rosa's conception of slavery and applied her analysis of the civil rights struggles she was involved in during the late 1960s and early 1970s. The next time you go to Washington, the District of Columbia, the capital of the United States, there's an area called Anacostia where Frederick Douglass House is located. It is now a museum. If you care about black history, pay that house a visit. You'll see where Douglass lived. A nice little house there on a hill in Anacostia overlooking the United States Capitol building in the distance where Frederick Douglass walked to and from work in the morning and back. Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, the same Frederick Douglass, died February 20, 1895. We now turn the focus on Booker T. Washington. Booker Taliaforo Washington was born April 5, 1856. Washington was born into slavery. He put himself through school and became a teacher after the Civil War. In 1881, he founded the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute in Alabama, now known as the Tuskegee University, which grew immensely and focused on training black Americans in agricultural pursuits. A political advisor and writer, Washington clashed with intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois over the best avenues for racial uplift. Born to an enslaved person in Franklin County, Virginia, Washington was one of the foremost black American leaders of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In his early life, Washington's mother, Jane, worked as a cook for plantation owner James Burroughs. His father was an unknown white man, most likely from a nearby plantation. Washington and his mother lived in a one-room log cabin with a large fireplace, which also served as the plantation's kitchen. After emancipation, Washington and his family moved to Malden, West Virginia. Dire poverty ruled out regular schooling. At age nine, he began working first in a salt furnace and later in a coal mine. Determined to get an education, he enrolled at the Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute, now Hampton University in Virginia in 1872, 
working as a janitor to help pay expenses. He graduated in 1875 and returned to Malden, where for two years he taught children in a day school and adults at night. Following studies at Wayland Seminary, Washington, D.C., between 1878 and 1879, he joined the staff at Hampton. In 1881, Washington was selected to head a newly established normal school for black Americans at Tuskegee, an institution with two small converted buildings, no equipment and very little money. Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute became a monument to his life's work. At his death, 34 years later, it had more than 100 well-equipped buildings, some 1,500 students, a faculty of nearly 200 teaching, 38 trade and professionals, and an endowment of approximately $2 million. Washington believed that the best interests of black people in the post-reconstruction era could be realized through education in the crafts and industrial skills and the cultivation of the ventures of patience, enterprise, and thrift. He urged his fellow black men, most of whom were impoverished and illiterate farm laborers, to temporarily abandon the effort to win full civil rights and political power and instead to cultivate their industrial and farming skills as to attain economic security. Blacks would thus accept segregation and discrimination, but their eventual acquisition of wealth and culture would gradually win for them the respect and acceptance of the white community. This would break down divisions between the two races and lead to equal citizenship for blacks in the end. In his epochal speech, September 18, 1895, to a racially mixed audience at the Atlanta Exposition, Washington summed up his pragmatic approach in the famous phrase, In all things that are purely social, we can be separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. These sentiments were called the Atlanta Compromise by such critics as the black intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois, who deplored Washington's emphasis on vocational skills to the detriment of academic development and civil rights. And indeed, it is true that during the period of Washington's ascendancy as national spokesman for black Americans, his race was systematically excluded both from the franchise and from any effective participation in national political life. And rigid patterns of segregation and discrimination became institutionalized in the southern states. Even Washington's visit to the White House in 1901 was greeted with a storm of protest as a breach of racial etiquette. Most blacks 
felt comfortable with Washington's approach, however, and his influence among whites was such that he became an unofficial arbiter determining which black individuals and institutions were deemed worthy to benefit from government patronage and white philanthropic support. He went on to receive honorary degrees from Howard University in 1896 and Dartmouth College in 1901. Among his dozen books is his autobiography, Up From Slavery, in 1901, translated into many languages. You're in touch with WPKN. The show is What's Your Point? The focus is on Booker T. Washington, one of the great black Americans during the late 19th and early 20th centuries in the United States. Let's get back a little to Booker T. Washington's early life. At an early age, he went to work carrying sacks of grain to the plantation's mill. Toting 100-pound sacks was hard work for a small boy, and he was beaten on occasion for not performing his duties satisfactorily. Washington's first exposure to education was from the outside of a schoolhouse near the plantation. Looking inside, he saw children his age sitting at desks and reading books. He wanted to do what those children were doing, but he was enslaved, and it was illegal to teach enslaved people to read and write. In 1895, Booker T. Washington publicly put forth his philosophy on race relations in a speech at the Cotton States and International Exposition in Atlanta, Georgia, known as the Atlanta Compromise. In his speech, Washington stated that black Americans should accept disenfranchisement and social segregation as long as white people allow them economic progress educational opportunity and justice in the courts. Washington's proclamation of his Atlanta Compromise started a firestorm in parts of the black American community, especially in the North. Activists like W.E.B. Du Bois, who was working as a professor at Atlanta University at the time, deplored Washington's conciliatory philosophy and his belief that Black Americans were only suited to vocational training. The boys criticized Washington for not demanding 
equality for black Americans as granted by the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution and subsequently became an advocate for full and equal rights in every realm of a person's life. Though Washington had done much to help advance many black Americans, there was some truth in the criticism. During Washington's rise as a national spokesperson for black Americans, they were systematically excluded from the vote and political participation through black codes and Jim Crow laws, which are flaws, as rigid patterns of segregation and discrimination became institutionalized throughout the South and much of the country. You are listening to a special Black History Month edition of What's Your Point here on WPKN Radio. I am Garnet Anker. At this point, the focus is on Booker T. Washington. In 1901, United States President Theodore Roosevelt invited Booker T. Washington to dinner at the White House, making him the first black American to be so honored. The fact that Roosevelt asked Washington to dine with him, inferring the two were equal, was unprecedented and controversial, causing a ferocious uproar among white people. Both President Roosevelt and his successor, President William Howard Taft, used Booker T. Washington as an advisor on racial matters, partly because he accepted racial subservience. His White House visit and the publication of his autobiography, Up From Slavery, brought him both acclaim and indignation from many Americans, while some black Americans looked upon Washington as a hero Others, like the boys, saw him as a traitor. Many Southern white people, including some prominent members of Congress, saw Washington's success as an affront and called for action to put black Americans in their place. Washington was a complex individual who lived during a precarious time in advancing racial equality. On one hand, he was openly supportive of black Americans taking a back seat to white people, while on the other, he secretly financed several court cases challenging segregation. By 1913, Washington had lost 
much of his influence, the newly inaugurated racist President Woodrow Wilson was cool to the idea of racial integration and black American equality. Washington remained the head of Tuskegee Institute until his passing on November 14, 1915, at the age of 59, of congestive heart failure. section of a conversation I had with social worker Kenyatta Thompson. We spoke on mental health care for black people as we celebrate Black History Month. It's hard to be a black person and not advocate for the issues that you care about. But uh -huh. the thing that initially, I would say, kept me in this, what kept me in being an organizer is watching members of our organization really take ownership and fight back and feel as though they have power. Organizers, that's what we do. We build power amongst community residents. And especially as a Black person, a person from the African diaspora, a lot of times we don't feel as though we have that power. And we do. Okay. And um, a reminder, you're in tune to WPKN Radio. The show is What's Your Point? Kenyatta Thompson. A community organizer with Qatar Center is my live institute, I guess. And um, do you have political aspirations? I know usually uh, community organizers usually veer off into politics later. Uh, uh, do you have that um, aspiration for one day becoming a politician or a leading politician of the day? Surprisingly, no. I think I get that question a lot, <clears throat> whether or not I would become a politician, but it is not on my radar. I'm, I'm more about building up our community and maybe some other folks can be the politicians. Okay. All right. Um, we, we are surrounding the, the question of structural racism in the United States today, fact or fiction. And um, what is structural racism? What is structural racism? That is a very hard question to answer in 30 seconds, but structural racism is, I think we have to start with what is racism? which gets misconstrued all the time. Racism is prejudice plus power. The power that one has over another group, specifically a group of individuals from a particular race or background. And race is a whole nother question in and of itself. But structural racism is essentially taking the power that you have and creating these institutions where racism is embedded in those institutions and it makes it difficult for an individual or a member of that race to basically live their daily lives without feeling the structural oppression, without feeling structural racism. And the power piece is key. I think often folks who don't understand racism will often conflate racism and prejudice to say that they're the two things, but they are not the same. One can be prejudiced against someone, but if you don't have the power to enact 
anything different. If you don't have the power to keep that person down, that is not racism, that's prejudice. Racism is this really insidious, and structural racism is this really insidious thing that seeps its way into basically every form of our society. So you're saying that a black person in this country cannot be racist. They can be prejudiced, but not racist because they lack the power to do so. They, yes, they lack the power that folks of other races have because of how we have designed our world. So and when you hear someone out there says a black person is racist, they don't really know what they're saying. That's fodder. Okay, so that black person may be prejudiced against white people, but not racist. Correct. Okay, all right. So, um, you know, you get that all the time. People say, oh, you're racist. And even black people say that, you know, say too. So, um, oh, have you seen working in your field, not necessarily this one, but previously, have you seen any evidence of structural racism? You see it all the time. One of the things that prior to coming to Catal, I was a workforce developer and I would help individuals who had been previously incarcerated seek employment. And one of the biggest evidences of structural racism I would see is our young people would apply for jobs and simply because of their name their application wouldn't have been looked at. I myself, you said my name, Kenyatta Thompson. It's really hard to think that I'm anything but a black woman or a black person because Kenyatta is a unisex name. But a lot of the times I would see applicants that I would, or people that I would work with, their applications wouldn't be heard. Or even myself, I'd apply for certain jobs and would not get a call back. And I would change my name to Kay Thompson, which is much more neutral. And I would get a call back. Okay, so it's... uh, pervades entire society uh you have done prison suicide uh work um in the past briefly briefly speak about on that for for us let us understand what you do what you did then so a few years ago i was an intern at the american foundation for suicide prevention in washington dc and i was a public policy associate it was a great internship but what i did was I remember day one of the internship, we had to pick a topic to research and do work on and then present at our public policy council. And something in me decided to work on prison suicide prevention strategies. So what I did was look up national prison suicide prevention strategies, look at whether or not those strategies were effective, what spurred those strategies on, what were the rates of suicide across the country, and then even hyper-localized in certain uh, states or even municipalities, what those rates of suicide were, and then essentially present my findings on what should change, what is working, what isn't working, what are the national trends, and where America is going around suicide prevention for people who are incarcerated. Uh, During that stint, Are you able to say in terms of percentage, race, in terms of these people were more inclined to be a victim of suicide or um, whether it was more black people or less, that kind of thing? Are you able to to say the the number? I can speak a little bit to that. Like I said, it was a few years ago and I Uh think it was 2013, but... At the time, individuals who were incarcerated, and not just prison, I will clarify, because a lot of my work also over um, went into jails as well, which are a little different. Um, but for people who are incarcerated, the rates of suicide back in 2011, which was where the data was coming from, were higher than the national average. The rates at the time were about 11 per 100,000 for people who are incarcerated versus 12 for um for every 100,000. And 
As I was going through my notes this morning and over the last week to prepare for this, what I found at the time was it was most of the time people who were incarcerated in jails who actually took their life at higher rates. And similar to national trends, the majority of them were white middle class men. So, okay, majority. So um, so black would be in the minority along with Hispanics and so forth? Right. At the time, there weren't that many incarcerated people who were um, African-American, Latino, who were taking their lives. But my research found that it was mostly um, white middle class men. However, like something to really point out and not to just share this name without, you know, I will share this name and I recognize there's pain attached to it. So I just want to honor that pain. But during the time was when Khalif Browder had actually gotten released from prison and I think shortly thereafter had taken his own life, which I think just released from jail, which highlights the fact that a lot of folks, again, are who were at the time taking their lives were incarcerated in jail. And when you just think around the politics and what jail is, jail is when a person is not convicted of a crime. So the fact that individuals are just being housed in jail and they were taking their lives more so than people who were even in prison who were, you know, incarcerated for a long period of time or for however period of time. It's just, it's awful to to think about. So in terms of the number who um, they they would have contemplated but not carried it out in terms of race what would you say the breakdown is in terms of race would you be able to remember can't really speak to the breakdown of race because Uh one of the things that i found in doing this research is that data isn't readily available Mm. it was a lot of me calling states trying to get that information Uh from them and even when i would talk to the folks who answered the phone in Mm. ohio or in pennsylvania or in colorado they weren't readily they weren't going to give me that information readily. It was always, we have to talk to our lawyers, which I think underscored the fact that, or highlighted the fact that there wasn't much thought at the time to prison or jail suicide prevention strategies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a bigger issue of how we view people who are incarcerated. We don't, as a society, we don't put as much effort into people who are incarcerated. It, we just toss them into this bucket, which is embarrassing, which is horrible to think about. So what, what do you think society should do in terms of politicians to, to lessen the, the, the burden of suicide cases in prison? What, what do you think? So that's a, another bigger question, I think, in terms of what we can do to help people who are struggling with suicide in general, not just while people are incarcerated, but in general, I don't think... I don't think that enough attention is given to people who struggle with suicide. And again, this is from a previous life. So I'm speaking um, on things that I've done previously, but we just need to do a lot more. And there are some practical things that people can do for folks who are incarcerated, for instance, increasing the number of increasing the time that folks are monitored while they are incarcerated. I know in one case in particular, when I was researching Ohio and Ohio prisons and jails, um, there was also an infamous case at the time, I believe it was Ariel Castro in Ohio who had taken his own life. And there's a lot surrounding that. But one of the issues was the the correctional officers were supposed to rotate every 15 minutes. And they found that in the prison in general, they weren't doing that. And so they were only going by once an hour which is not what you should be doing if somebody is on suicide watch and you have these policies and procedures in place. So there are some practical things like how often you monitor a person, what mental health resources are available in prison or in jail, what other types of resources. But 
so yes, there are practical things, but there are just a lot that we could do as a society and hold to help people who are struggling with suicide. So can you just name a few things that you think could be done to maybe lessen the incidence of suicides in prison as well as in the streets, at people's homes, places of work, that kind of thing? I think the number one thing that I would suggest is community building community when people don't have those community connections it's a lot easier for them to slip through the cracks and there are tons of resources even as recent as um, a few years ago I was an intern at the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services where I worked on suicide prevention strategy so there are a ton of resources that I can think of off the top of my head like strengthening community ties strengthening the person's connection to mental health providers opening access to mental health providers it's one thing to say oh go and see a therapist but it's another thing when you don't have health insurance because of how the state is uh, the state operates or it's another thing when you are a black person and the only you know, providers you see are people who are not of the same race and maybe you feel as though they can't relate and you don't know what your options are or just even pure access. Maybe you do have health insurance, but your copay is $40 a month and you can't go and afford to see that. So there are a number of things that we can do. And like I said, there are a number of different organizations that do that work, um, whether it's where I used to intern before AFSP or whether it's even hyper locally in Connecticut looking at the um Demis Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, blah, blah, blah. The proceeding was a conversation with community organizer Kenyatta Thompson. You have been listening to a special Black History Month edition of What's Your Point? I am Garnet Ankle.